You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. I'm an audiologist by profession. Uh, I've just recently wrapped up a career of 28 years at an eight-man ENT physician office. I started there just right out of college, and as things progressed, I became a partner in the business. I got to the point uh, where I really couldn't go anywhere else and make the kind of money that I was making. It was a sweet job. I loved it. I loved everything about it. My identity really became um, what I was in my occupation. Turning point came uh, where uh, through the downcline of the economy and through healthcare changes, um, private practice industry is getting tougher and tougher in the medical field. And our business, after growing upward for 27 years, started to peak and kind of to flatten off a little bit. In the last two or three years, my partner and I, that we weren't really sure how the industry was going to kind of pan out. But I kept thinking, I only got about 10 more years left. (laughs) If I could just hang in there, um, it'd be great. About a year ago, uh, the physicians came to us and told us that we had been outvoted at a meeting that we had not attended, um, and that they had gone to a manufacturer of hearing aids and had asked them to purchase um, our business. Without much notice, they decided to sell to that manufacturer. So they came to us and they said, we only need one audiologist. They looked at all of our books and they said, you have too many top paid audiologists and so get rid of employee B. And I happened to be that employee B after 28 years with them. That came as a big shock that day. And essentially I lost my job. So they decided to offer me a job upstairs in the diagnostic department at 45% reduction in my salary, which I was delighted to take because um, I was the sole provider at this point in time. My husband was on his own uh, whirlwind with a family business, and I decided with this um, that I, with such confidence and, and feeling of that I'm good at what I do, I just thought, oh, this will be easy. I'll just get another job. Uh, I'm still working upstairs, and every day it is a struggle to walk into that place. I thought, you know what? I'm going to go in there with a smile on my face every day, serve the patients, and they have no knowledge or idea. It was months before another job came along, and I thought, my gosh, what am I going to do? I'm like... I can't get a I can't get a job. <laughs> I can't get a job in Sacramento. I um, stumbled upon a friend, and I had worked with her in the past. And she says, "Hey, I have a great job at the VA." And I was like, "Oh, the VA! Wow, that's really institutionalized. That's definitely not what I was thinking." Uh, so I looked at the salary, and I thought, "Oh." Still a little more than I'm making now. Um, But I'm starting to transition through all this and thinking that maybe my focus and my position was not to make money. Maybe my focus was too much on money and that I needed to focus on um, what would make me happy in my job. 
and how would serving be happier in my job and not have to have the rat race of uh, numbers and, and making money and did you profit and, and all of that. Toss my hat into the arena of the VA, not really wanting the job, but wanting to get out of where I was. And again, in the back of my mind, I was always thinking, maybe this is where God wants me. So I started at the VA about four weeks ago, and I absolutely love my job. I love what I do. I serve heroes every day, and I don't have to worry about profit. I give them the best of the best hearing aid care. I give them the best of the best audiological care. I don't have to worry about numbers. I just have to worry about being the best audiologist and serving them in a population that has served and given back to us. So it's a great feeling. I cannot have asked for a better job at this point in time, and I believe that God is so wrapped around it that it is so blessed. Um, and the journey of allowing my family and friends to see the journey um, through me and to keep my head high and to keep a smile on my face and not to have caused the situation that I went through to make me resentful. I thought that was the bottom line, is that if I couldn't tell my story with God wrapped all around it, and that I came out a better person um, and a changed person, and my uh, controlling nature just a little more buffed, obviously, that God wanted me to be a little bit more softer and buffed. If I didn't come out better for this, then it was all for nothing. Yeah, Judy does a great job and uh, just is loving serving people. Hey, let me pray for us as we get going today. God, we're so grateful for you. We're so grateful for what you want to do in us. Lord, I look forward to what you want to do in our hearts right now. So God, we ask you to be our teacher to guide us. And we're so thankful that you're the source of transformation. So we just make ourselves available. We say, God, you transform us. You transform our life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, let me tell you why you need this uh, sermon this morning. It's so important that you need this sermon this morning because a lot of you are in a different point of transition. We've looked over this transformed series. We've looked at a lot of different areas. We've looked at your spiritual health, like how do you and I get closer to God? We've looked at your physical health, your mental health, your emotional health. How do I deal with how I feel? We've looked at your relational health, the fears that harm relationships. We've looked at your financial health, how do I see and handle money? And today we're going to look at your vocational health. How do we face the giants in our life and in our work? And a lot of you might say, hey, I, I'm, I don't really see myself in a transitional pl uh, place in life. But the truth is, a lot of us just go through life by showing up. And I've heard sometimes before that, hey, if you just want to make it through life, you just keep showing up. But the truth is, there's more to life than just showing up. Showing up means you and I show up and we maintain. We get to a certain point and we're just maintaining our life. We're just keeping it going. But it's in maintaining, it's just in showing up, that there are certain times that you and I begin to stop dreaming. 
And there need to be dreams in your life and in my life. In fact, along the way, you and I need to begin to dream big again, to think big. Some of you have just graduated from high school or from college, and you're beginning to look at the world ahead of you and say, I'm in a transition right now, and there seem to be giants in my life and my career, and I don't know how it all will work out, but I just need to know the Lord. I need to know how God's going to work in and through that. Some of you have just become self-sufficient. And you've walked through life and you've walked through just your experiences and you're just saying, I, I, I'm, just trying to, I'm just trying to maintain what I have. I'm just trying to like to, not to lose anything else. And maintaining isn't gaining. And, and we love when we look at the Bible, we love when we look in culture, we love the underdog stories, right? Some of you, when your team gets knocked off, you could care less about the rest of the teams, but you want the underdog to win. That's who you end up cheering for because you love the story of the little one defeating the big one, the, the small everyday person defeating the giant. And so much of that comes from the story of David and Goliath. And for many of you in this room, you're very familiar with that story. You've, you've heard it since you were a youth, but to be honest, there's a lot of you in this room that you don't even really know who King David was in the Bible, and you didn't grow up with Bible stories, and, and you didn't realize that this is a true, real-life account of the living God and his work in a very real, honest person in life. And you're just saying, I don't, I don't get it, but what I do get is that there are places in my life where I stop dreaming. There's places in my life where I stop believing that God could do more than I could think or I could ask or I could imagine. And I'm just trying to protect what I have. I think the reason you and I like underdog stories is because we identify that there are giants in our life. Sometimes we've created them. Sometimes they're outside of us. But there are giants in our life. And we hunger for transformation there. If you have your Bible, open with me to the historical count of David fighting Goliath. It happens in 1 Samuel chapter 17, beginning with verse 2. And it says this, Saul and the Israelites, let me just, I'll just time out real quick, give you background. Saul is the king of the Israelite nation. He has been anointed king. He's the king, all right? So he and his armies, Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle lines to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. Let me just time out right there. I got to picture this for you because some of you have not been to Israel. Now, I've been to Israel and I've been to the valley of Elah and I got to tell you what it's like because some of you just have a picture in your mind when we read this and it may not be accurate. This really is the Battle of Napa, California. And when you think of the Valley of Elah, it is like Napa. I mean, in, in Israel, you have coastal mountains. Then you have this wide open plain that's like the Central Valley. You have these little rolling hills that go up toward the coastal mountains. And that's where the Valley of Elah is. So what you want to think of is you want to think of like oak trees against the background of the wild grasses. You want to think of wheat fields. You want to think of extensive vineyards around that area. You want to think of wineries. And this is the area that they went to fight this battle. The Philistines come up and they camp on one hill and the Israelites on the other. They're basically occupying two vineyards in the Valley of Napa. Now that you have the right picture for what's happening here, that's where they are. They're in what's called the Shvelah. That would be the Central Valley of Israel. And then, verse 4, a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits in a span. That's nine feet, over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. That is 125 pounds. Let me just time out right there. Think about that. His chain mail, 
that he puts on, like in Lord of the Rings, is 125 pounds. It weighs more than most of your children, all right? Let's just put it out there. That's what he puts on when he puts on his chain mail. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels, which is 15 pounds, which is heavier than most of your heads. Just to put that in perspective, it weighed more than your head does. His shield bearer went ahead of him. And you got to realize what a great story this is, what a great picture this is of a historical story, because you got to realize that the Philistines had all the advantages. They had all the blacksmith shop. Anything bronze was not in Israel. It was outside the nation of Israel. The Philistines had all these things, so they had better weapons. They had better swords. Their metalology was better. They, uh, Goliath comes out, and he's over nine feet tall. Think of that for a minute. That's two feet taller than Shaquille O'Neal or Dwight Howard. I mean, this guy comes out and makes those guys look small. And he comes out and he's got all this weaponry and he comes out and his voice is booming and he begins to taunt these nations of Israel. And if you're taking notes today, and I highly encourage you to because I think God's going to speak to you as you kind of write some of these notes and process these things through your mind. Because the reason you and I need these today is that we are a lot like the armies of Israel. We think it's good enough to go out and show up for the battle. But sometimes we face a giant and just showing up isn't good enough. We think that maintaining is good enough, but God wants us not to maintain. He wants us to gain. He wants us to gain ground. He wants us to reach out beyond ourselves to require and need a very big God, not just a small belief of God where we just show up to somehow appease him. God wants us to do more than that. And so right there, they have all the advantages the Philistines do, and the Israelites show up. But you got to realize, first of all, who should have killed Goliath? Who should have killed Goliath in this historical account? It should be Saul. Saul is the king of the Israelite people. But a couple chapters earlier, it talks about him when he gets found and anointed as king. He is head and shoulders above everybody else in Israel. In other words, who's the biggest guy in all of Israel? It's Saul. It's this guy, and they anointed him king. He looked kingly. He acted kingly in many ways, but he's gotten to a point in his kingship where he's come up against something that's bigger than him, and he is just maintaining. He should have been the one to lead out and kill Goliath. Goliath comes out in all his glory, and Israel should have sent their biggest guy, their best guy. He should have led the armies, not just said armies go take care of business from the safety of headquarters, but he is the biggest guy. He should have gone out there as leader to champion against Goliath. Some of us in this room, we think it's good enough to line up, show up, line up for battle, but our whole idea is just not to lose ground. We just want to maintain. We think showing up is good enough. And that in our personal lives or in other components of our lives, we're just, I'm just going to maintain this faith that I have. God doesn't want me to gain anything, as you might think, but he wants me just to, can't we just keep the security and the safety of what we have? And so they show up, and for 40 days, they line up, and Goliath comes out to taunt them, and they just maintain the lines. In other words, we don't allow the Philistine army to come up any higher up the valley. That's where we meet them and stop them is at the valley so the battle doesn't arrive in Jerusalem. We're going to go and meet them there. And they just 
maintain. And sadly, the goal of many Christians is not to lose more ground. But God put us here to gain, not just to maintain. He put us here to add to his kingdom. In fact, God put you here right now in this seat because God had you in mind when he went into battle and advanced against the giant of sin, conquered it, gave his life for you and me on a cross, canceled out our code of sin that was against us, and when we put our faith and trust in him, we have eternal life. We have new life in Christ. We're made a new creation right here, right now. We have eternal life as a son or a daughter of the most high God after death. And death is quite a giant, isn't it? And he said, I want to fix the problem. I want to gain in such a way. Let me be honest with you. Some people kind of poo-poo the idea of church growth. But I got to let you know that God wants the church to grow. It's why he instituted the church. If he didn't want the church to grow, he could have just kept his small group of disciples and said, hey, you guys are in and you're my best friends and it can be we four and no more and then just you know, maintain with that. And God's like, no. God instituted the church and said, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. God, by launching out the institution of the church, had you in mind had your salvation in mind. He doesn't say get to a certain size and be that, then just maintain. Let's just try not to lose what we have. He says, gain, go into all the world, make disciples. But sadly, what happens for us, we think sometimes maintaining is all we're supposed to do. I have my salvation. I need to just maintain it. And God's saying, go, go, make a difference. But there are some other giants that David had to face. As he walked into this situation, other giants that he had to face, and if you're taking notes today, the first one is delay. The first giant he had to face was delay. Verse 12, now David was the son of an Ephratite named Jesse, who is from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So David is the youngest. He's paying his dues. Listen, when you got eight sons, you don't need to hire a servant in an agricultural society. So you don't hire a servant to watch your sheep. You just get the youngest son to go. That's your job. Sorry, the older brothers get the honor of the glory. They get to sign up and go off to battle. Uh, you don't even get to see the action. You get to go watch over the sheep. And that's what David would do. And every now and then his dad would say, okay, go check in on your brothers and take them some things. And that's what he would do. But there was a delay. Some of you know what that's like. You're in a situation where you got to get your foot in the door, where you got to pay your dues, where, where you're leapfrogging between all these different things that you're hoping might lead to a permanent full-time job, or you're leapfrogging from all these relationships, hoping that one relationship will be that relationship that you're hoping somehow will heal and complete you. And God's saying, I've been here for you all along. But you're leapfrogging, you're looking, there's a delay. You're saying, God, when? How long will I be single? God, how long till I graduate? God, how long till I retire? 
I've got a friend named Pat who's going to retire in nine days, and he's very excited, and I, I was talking to him this morning, and, and, you know, Pat's job is not to retire out of the school system and then just relax and go on a cruise. Retirement opens up the door for him to continue to live his kingdom calling to be an intercessor, to pray, to slay giants in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's opening up the door for him to have expanded opportunity to do some of the things he couldn't do while he was working. His life plan is radically different than what the world would tell our life plan to be, isn't it? But there's delay. How long? How long, Lord? David had to wait days and days to even see the armies in battle. The second giant that David had to face was discouragement. Discouragement. I think discouragement is one of the strongest giants you and I ever will face. Verse 8 says, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why don't you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down here to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will be your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subject and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. And on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. What were they? They were totally discouraged. And what happens when the, when the people see the leader being totally discouraged, what do they do? They just own and magnify. Okay, if the biggest guy is terrified and discouraged, what are we? Extra terrified and extra discouraged, aren't we? And that's the condition that they found themselves in. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where everybody around you thought that this is hopeless? I mean, maybe you're at work and they're just saying, hey, listen, we could never do that in this economy. It's just not going to work. In fact, we don't have the infrastructure in our own company. In fact, I think maybe they're going to resort to layoffs. And you've you got these people around you just say, it's hopeless. It's never going to happen. We can't solve this problem. It's going down the tubes and they're saying it's, it can't be done. It simply can't be done. Maybe you've had a dream, and people around you have just said, it can't be done. There's no way. Who are you? You don't have the relationships. You don't have the connections. You don't have the education. You don't have, and they begin to shoot your dreams down, and you just begin to become discouraged. Maybe you're in a situation like that. Verse 16 says, for 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. He went out to taunt them twice a day for 40 days. And I can't help but think that they're in the Valley of Elah, that those 40 days began to feel for the Israelites like 40 years in the desert. Are we just going to maintain living? Are we just going to eat manna from God? Or do we ever get to go see all the produce in the Shvelah? Do we ever get to go to Napa? Do we ever get to go up into the valley that's up there in Israel? Will we ever take that land? And here they are now up in that land, and they're saying, we're stopped by a giant. Not 40 days, he comes and taunts us twice a day. And the best military minds among us have not come up with a solution yet. They're content to just maintain. They're not worried about gaining anything. Verse 23, David's talking with different people, and it says this. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. And whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. 
They don't want to get singled out. Hey, you there, go attack that guy, right? They're like, hear the guy, they're like, ah, they run away because they've just, probably none of us in the room have ever seen someone that big and they're captivated by fear. Let me give you some advice. Don't put fearful people in your innermost circle. The circle that influences you the most, don't put fearful people in that circle. Keep them maybe at the, the circle of your acquaintance or the circle of, of just your, kind of your outer friends, but don't put them in the very people that encourage you, that should be there to encourage and to stretch you and to grow you. You're the most influential people in your life, don't put fe- fearful people there because if you do, you'll become fearful. Fear was spreading all throughout the camp. And what happened? They hung out with a bunch of fearful people and they all became fearful. David shows up. He's like, I haven't been in the camp for 40 days. He shows up, hears this for the first time, and he watches the fear spread among the people, but he has fresh eyes to see something that they can't even see. I mean, honestly, if you hang out with cowards, what will happen? You'll become a coward. If you hang out with bitter people, you'll become bitter, right? If you hang out with angry people, you're going to begin to fuel anger in your life, right? If we put fearful people right around us in our innermost circle and hang out with people who are fearful or they're negative, we're going to become fearful. We're going to become negative. We might even own and magnify what they already feel. It's highly contagious. So the first barrier to your dream that God would put on your life is this. It's delay. God, when is this going to happen? How long? And I don't know. If it takes so long, maybe it's never going to happen. The second is disapproval. It's somebody is trying to hold you back. They're discouraging you. It's, it's, they're just discouraging you. And the third is that everybody just tells you that life stinks and it can't be done. You need to realize they're wrong. The third giant you and I face is disapproval. Disapproval. Here's the problem. The real reason that most people don't ever go after their dream is because of the fear that other people will disapprove. Well, my spouse might disapprove, or my dad or my mom might disapprove, or, or these other people would disapprove. As soon as, I let that, as soon as I let that idea out of my mouth, then the disapproval's going to come, and I don't know if I can handle that. All the naysayers are going to begin to speak into my life, and I'm afraid of disapproval. Look at verse 28. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? What happens right there? The oldest brother comes along and he starts to begin to show his disapproval. In fact, I think he feels disrespected because David shows up and they've been there for 40 days, but David shows up and starts to be like, asked around like, hey, who's going to go fight this? And he begins to bring fresh eyes and he begins to bring vision to them. And all of a sudden, the older brother feels very disrespected. And when you as a man feel disrespected, you want to put somebody else in their place because David is speaking like the oldest brother should have been speaking all along. And when he knew this in his heart, I think he's condemning himself. And when we feel that, we begin to attack other people. So he says, he's tried to put David in his place. Well, you probably didn't leave anybody with the sheep, which means you can't even do that job. And by the way, you're the shepherd. I just want to let everyone around here know, this guy, David, who's talking to you, he's a shepherd. A shepherd. It's the worst job. 
That's David, and he's the one trying to encourage you. I mean, that's what the older brother does, right? The reason most people don't go after their dream is because of the fear of disapproval. There's always going to be internal opposition. So here in the camp suddenly raises its head, internal opposition, David's own brother. And there's also going to be external opposition, the giant himself, Goliath. So you're always going to have internal opposition and external opposition when God wants to begin a work and a dream through you. You and I can expect it. So here's David. He's there. He's saying, what are we going to do about this to different people in the army? He's looking around, and here's the reality. The biggest barrier he's facing right now is his brother. If I can just get by my brother, then... Things can move forward. And some of you have that person in your life, don't you? If I could just get by my spouse, then I could follow God the way I want. If I could just get by my brother, then I could do this. If I could just get by my dad or my mom, or maybe for some of you, it's if I could just get by the tags and the labels and the statements that either a person in authority or my mom or my dad or someone gave to me along the way. If I could just get past that giant, the internal, inside the camp giant, then I could go outside and face the ones outside. And the biggest reason most people don't go after their dream is being afraid of disapproval. But what does David do? You got to realize that those who just maintain in life, those who just try to keep what's theirs, those who are so safety conscious and trying to hold on and love this world, they're not so concerned with God's kingdom and God's world, but they're trying to hold on to what they have in this world. Those people will always criticize the David spirit. When you have a spirit that just says, I'm not the man, but I represent for the man, and this guy is taunting the man. Again, when you and I take our ego and we put our ego out in front of there, we're going to realize our ways that we're insufficient in our abilities. But when we take our identity and our identity as son or daughter of the most high God and we represent for the man, we can go out and do great and amazing things because God is God. And we're not. But you begin to realize that's what we can do. But some of you face a giant not only on the external thing or disapproval. Some of you, you doubt. And for some of you, it's self-doubt. Some of you, it's the doubt of others. And that's the fourth giant that David had to face before he even got out on the battlefield was doubt. Verse 32, David now is talking to King Saul. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go out and fight him. And Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. Saul, the biggest guy, the guy who basically should be out there fighting him, looks at David and goes, you can't do it. You're small. David's looking at Saul going, you're big. You're not doing it. That's pretty much what he's saying, right? You just see that there. Listen, I mean, you got to realize David couldn't figure out why everybody was running to their tents and why everybody was talking and why nobody was going out there to shut this Philistine up. He's looking around going, what has happened here? I don't understand. They've forgotten their identity. They've forgotten who they are, that they're the Israelites, the people of God, and they've forgotten their identity. The most unbelievable part to me of this story is not the size of the giant. 
It's the size of the emasculated faith of the Israelites. God is big. Goliath is pretty big. But the faith had just shrunken of the Israelites. They had forgotten who they are. And when you and I forget who we are and whose we are, then we forget that we represent for a God who's able to do more than you can ask or imagine when it comes to the giants in our lives. The greatest tragedy in the church today, in my opinion, the greatest tragedy in Christians today, the greatest tragedy in most churches today is not that we're rejecting the faith, it's that we're maintaining a weak faith in the face of our giants. That we're saying, let me just maintain the faith that I have. I don't need to grow. You don't look at this summer and say, hey, kids are graduating in my house and and now they're going to go on. College is really going to help them grow. And you're thinking to yourself, "Uh, I just maintain my faith. I really don't need to grow. Yes, you do. There are giants in the land. You need to grow. You need to gain. You need to keep pursuing God. Encounter God every day. Grow through community as we gather together. But let's not just stop there and maintain. Let's go be the church and live our calling, right? Let's you and I go out and begin to be the church. It's not, don't hire the church to dream for you, but be the church and let God dream in and through you, give you fresh eyes to see giants in the land and what the possibilities actually are. The enemy is a suggester of doubt. He's the one who suggests, whether in your mind or through other people, he's the one who suggests doubt. He attacks our identity. And you and I need to learn to recognize those suggestions, whether they're our thoughts on the inside or whether they're vocalized on the outside as from the source that they're from. Jesus is talking to Peter. And Peter makes a suggestion, which in his suggestion is, Jesus, we don't want you to suffer, so let's do something else. Well, Jesus came to be the suffering servant. He came with you and I in mind. The giant he came to kill was sin. And he came to conquer sin. And Peter's saying, let's not do that. And right then he turns to Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. He's not calling Peter Satan. He's not saying, you little devil. What he's saying is, Jesus is identifying the road to ease, the road to maintain. Let's just keep this safe and contained and easy like we have it now. Let's just keep the permanence of the good of what we think we have right now is the whisper of the enemy because the last thing he wants you to do is kill his giant. We need to identify when that self-doubt comes in. Mm -mm, We take that captive. We make it obedient to Christ because we represent for him. And in the same way, when the voice of others come out, we hear that, we need to hear it through the filter of, is this great counsel, great wisdom, or is that the voice of the enemy saying, just maintain what you got right now? So how do we do it? How do we defeat giants? Number one on your outline, we got to remember some things. I remember how God has helped me in the past. God has been faithful to us in little ways. And that's the track record that gives us that confidence to say, God's going to be faithful to me in big ways. Here's how David did it. Listen, verse 36, he said of himself, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. He doesn't say the armies of Saul. He doesn't say our armies. He doesn't say the best army in the world. He doesn't say the best branch of the arm, you know, of the, of the armed forces in the world. He says this is the armies of the living God. He says the Lord 
who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Guess what? There's a track record here. As David was a shepherd out with the sheep thinking, I don't know what this delay is all about, but I just got to take care of the sheep. Well, a lion comes along and he kills it. And a bear comes along and he kills it. And God gives him the ability. God gives him the strength. God gives him the wisdom to be able to kill things far greater than himself. And those things give him the confidence that now because God is the source of that power, God can do that in and through us. David says, I'm willing to go. I'll do it. Think about your life. There are times in your life when you thought you were all alone. But you weren't. It looked like the giant came into your world and, and crushed down your circumstances and you thought, this is it, oh, we'll never make it through this. But you did. You found strength in the Lord. There were times you looked at your life and say, I'm just exploring faith. I, I, you know, I don't even know all this stuff that you're talking about, but I'm just, I'm exploring, I'm seeing what God is all about. I'm here at church, maybe it's the first time or, or you've been coming for a little while and you're like, I'm just exploring this. But as you look back at your life, you're going, there are times that life should have gone radically different or times when I should not be here today and yet I am. And could it be that God was reaching to me all those times and extending himself to me all those times and that I never acknowledged that it was him, but he was there for me. And it meant that there were seasons that were brutal in life. When life was brutal, it wasn't God was brutal, but when life was brutal, I wasn't alone. Remember when you thought you were at rock bottom and you were stuck in the mire and you would never climb out? But you did. God was with you. Do you remember the time when you, you just thought everything is going to end? But it didn't, and you're still going. See, you and I, we remember how God has helped us in the little times and realize he's going to help us in the big times. You know, it's interesting. God is unchanging. He doesn't love you one day and then hate you the next. I want you to grab that idea for just a minute. He doesn't love you one day and then change his mind the next. God loves you. And so you got to say, well, wait a minute, God. So, so you're saying... 10 years ago when I committed that huge, awful sin that you didn't give up on me then. And God says, nope, I didn't give up on you then. So you're not going to give up on me now. Nope, I'm not going to give up on you now. So God, when I did this or when this happened in my life, when I thought everything was going to fall apart and you actually walked me through the valley of the shadow of death and it was the shadow of death, it felt awful. But God, you would walk me through a similar valley now if life becomes relentless. Yes, I will. We remember how God has helped us in the past. It gives us courage to look ahead at the future. Second way we defeat giants is this. I use the tools that God has given me right now. Saul doesn't think David can do it, so he dresses up David. Uh, Saul puts on like kingly armor on this young adult or this older teenager and he basically says this in verse 38 then Saul dressed David in his own tunic he put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head David fastened on Saul's sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them I cannot go in these he said to Saul because I'm not used to them so he took them off and he took his staff in his hand, he chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag. With his sling in hand, he approached the Philistine. So here he does. Saul gives him, here, here's what you need, here's what you need. I'm worried about you, I'm worried about your success, so I'm going to give you human resources because I don't think God's going to come through. David goes, I, I can't, I, I can't do that stuff. Thank you very much for your generosity, but 
I, I'm not used to them. I'm going to use just what I have right now. What did he have right now? He had a little staff, a little shepherd stick, and he had a sling. Now, I got to tell you, Malcolm Gladwell investigates this. He writes uh, in one of his books that he talks about what it means. He basically says, listen, here's what a sling is like. And let me read you this part uh, from his book. He said this. Uh, well, he said basically there's three things. There's three types of armies. One is anybody who has anything to do with horses, right? Chariots or horseback, that's the cavalry. Then you have another type of warfare in those days. That's just ground forces. Dudes dressed up in armor with a sword in hand. That was them. The third was artillery. Artillery was basically three ways. One, they could either throw spears. Two, they could shoot arrows. Or third, they had the sling. And that's what David has. All he has is a sling. He's got artillery. Well, Goliath comes out with his ground warfare items except for his spear. David comes out with this lethal weapon, the sling. He said uh, this, Malcolm Gladwell, quote, Very often when we talk and people tell the story of David and Goliath, they make it sound like David had a slingshot, like it's some kind of child's toy. Listen, slingshots are not deadly weapons. If they were, most parents would be dead right now. David did not have a slingshot. He had a sling. A sling is very, very different and a far more lethal weapon. We have people who've studied slings, and there are, as is the case with most interesting things in the world, sling nerds out there who have decided and done all the calculations. He said this, we know that an experienced slinger would rotate that sling six or seven times a second, which means that if you do the math, that the rock would be traveling at 105 feet per second. So if Goliath is 100 feet from David, the rock will reach Goliath in less than a second. Goliath barely knows what's happening, and boom, the rock penetrates into his forehead, and he falls to the ground. It's a sling. It's got two ends with a pouch. You sling that thing around, you let go of one of the strings, and they were so accurate with it, they could hit whatever they wanted with it. David knows what the sling does to a lion. David knows what the sling does to a bear. David knows what the sling could do to Goliath. And he says, I got the Lord God and his representation behind me as I go out to face this giant. He uses the tools that God has given him. And some of you are just saying, I, I don't know, I don't think God's given me a lot of tools. I don't have a bunch of Bible knowledge. I don't have this, or I don't have that. I don't have the ability to, you know, do what some of these other people I see do. And God goes, bring me what you got. What little do you have? David's going, I don't have chain mail. I don't have a big old sword. I can't throw a spear further than anything. But I'll use what I have. And God said, way more than enough. I'll use what you have with my power. And he drilled him right in the forehead. David then runs up, takes Goliath's sword, because he didn't have one with him, takes Goliath's sword, I don't know how big that thing was, and he chopped Goliath, he finished the job. All the fear then spread from the Israelite army, spread over into the Philistine army, and they ran. David, by God's power, killed Goliath. Well, what's the Third thing we realize we need to do when it comes to killing giants, I ignore the dream killers. I ignore the dream killers. You know who these people are. You know who the dream killers are. And there will be times when you dream big and you begin to say, God, I'm going to launch out and do this. And there will be people who come along and they will kill your dreams. And they will just say, hey, look at this setback. And you can't look at it as a setback. You look at it as a failure. And God is coming along and saying, no, listen. There are dream killers. Later in David's life, 
he's being pursued by Saul, this very king that he's been helping out. Later in his life, because of jealousy, Saul starts throwing spears and bringing armies after David. David and his men, who are following him, flee out into the wilderness. And while they're out there, they're in some Philistine territory, and they, they leave the city where they are, and they go out and attack another one, and they inquire, God, should we go attack it? And God's like, go do it. So they go attack this other city. When they come back, their city has been attacked. All the women, all the children have been carried off, all their goats and their plunder and everything. It's all been carried off, and their city's on fire. And the men are grieved. They wanted to kill David. Like, wait, time out. Are you kidding me? Like, didn't we leave any guard here? We just ran off. Let's go to battle. And we didn't, like, who, who's the, you know, the military intelligence here? They wanted to kill David. 1 Samuel chapter 30, the same book, but later on says this. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Listen, these men are his inner circle. There's about 600 of them. There is inner circle. These are his trusted friends. And guess what? Every one of them out of grief, because hurting people hurt people, they want to kill David. They're grieving. Well, what did David do? He found his strength in the Lord his God. They sought the Lord. Eventually they went after them. They recaptured every, not one woman or child, the scriptures say, was lost. But in that moment, it's his worst moment. It's down. What did David learn to do? to encourage himself to find strength in the Lord. This is a solo experience. This is you and the living God. No giant in the room. It's just you and him. Do you do that? Do you encourage yourself in the Lord? This is so important. I want you to realize that if you're going to go after your dream, you're going to have to learn how to encourage yourself in the Lord that you need time alone. That's why here at Sunbrook Church we say, encounter God. You do it once the first time, you surrender your life to God, but then you encounter him every day. Why? Because there's giants in the land. There's discouragement in the land. There's dream killers all around. And we're going to come before God and go, God, uh, my weakness, your weakness, all around here, I'm going to face those giants, and because of those, they're going to be very discouraging, very dream killing. And we become afraid that we're going to become the person we fear becoming. David finds himself right there. And what does he do? He encourages himself in the Lord. You need to begin to feed yourself in relationship with the Lord, not just waiting to Sunday where you can show up. But you begin to feed. No one else is going to encourage you, and you're going to have to encourage yourself in the Lord. And the last thing you and I do when we slay giants, number four, ex I expect God to help me for his glory. Oh, we fantasize and dream about doing great things to serve our own ego. But you got to realize when God does something great, God does something great to reveal himself as great. And he uses us to do it in the process. And we share in that glory. He doesn't just use people to do what he wants to do. We get the privilege of seeing God do more than we could ask or imagine as we dream big with him. So what happens? David goes out to battle. Verse 45, David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. 
All those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord, and he will give all of you into our hands. And he lets that stone go. He fires his first shot, potentially before he could see the white of the eyes, and he changes the course of history. God fights the battle. The giant is slain. The stability in Israel is regained. Let me ask you, what are you expecting God to do in your life? Without even knowing all of you, I'll tell you what you can expect God is doing in your life. God is doing as much or as little as you expect him to. What do I mean by that? If you're simply maintaining in your life, you're not going to see God show up a whole lot because you're simply just protecting what you already have. You're not expecting anything from God. You're not stepping out in any sort of way to say, God, this requires you. This is beyond me. This requires you. And you're not going to see that. You're only going to see, you're going to see God doing exactly what you expect him to do. No more and no less. Every time God moves heaven, and he heaven on earth and does a miracle, it's because somebody believed somebody stepped out the bible says this the just shall live by faith the bible says without faith it's impossible to please god the bible says whoever is not of faith is whatever is not of faith is sin you get to choose how much god does in and through your life it's based on how much you're choosing to trust him god will you do that Will you do big things in and through me? Some of you are going away to college and you're just, you're worried about that. I'm going away to a, a school and it's going to be all these new people and there's new temptations and there's big giants in the land and you're just like, guess what? God will do what you're expecting him to do. Are you expecting God to forget you and then you fear you're going to become the person that you fear becoming? Or could God do great things in and through you? Could God do more than you could ask or imagine? Maybe you're afraid to leave your career. Maybe you're afraid to step out in some of those ways. God wants to work based on how much you're trusting him. You have no, listen to me, you have no idea how much your unbelief could be limiting somebody else. You might be the naysayer. You might be the dream killer, right? How much is your unbelief limiting somebody you love? Is your unbelief limiting your wife? Is your unbelief limiting your children? Is your unbelief limiting your, your husband? I mean, honestly, don't be Jesse. Remember Jesse, he's like, hey, you're the youngest, you're going out with the sheep. I got eight sons, I'm already old, I'm just trying to maintain what I have, take care of the sheep. He didn't even see the potential in David that God saw in David. And God sent the shepherd out to kill the biggest sheep named Goliath. But what about you and me? See, it's, it's not your dream for them. It's God's dream for them. What is God dreaming for them? And is your unbelief or my unbelief or our security trying to maintain what we have? He's saying graduate them, launch them out, let them go. It means when a husband leads his wife, sometimes there's very scary things involved and you gotta choose faith over fear and you gotta represent that. And it's scary because you think, I mean, think about the last time you moved. Sometimes that's a very scary thing. All you see is what you're losing and you may not see what you're, what you're gaining yet. But we don't wanna let unbelief hinder that, do we? You say this, I am not gonna let anybody else's unbelief hold me back and I'm not gonna let my unbelief hold anybody else back. I wanna be an encourager. 
I want to be somebody who lets God dream big dreams through people. As your pastor who loves you, I want you to dream big. Listen, I want you to encounter God and grow through community and live your calling. I want for us as a church to be faith-filled, big-thinking, bet-the-farm risk-takers. I want you to say this. I will not insult God with safe living or small thinking. See, that insults God, the whole idea to maintain. He says, I want you to gain, give yourself, and give your legacy, those who are watching your life. Give them the experience for them to see. Listen, my family risked. My family stepped out, and God showed up. He did what only God could do, and that's the legacy you give to your spouse, to your kids, to the people you lead at work, to people you lead in other areas. Wherever your influence is, you might be a young adult and you step out and like, God's going to do what only God could give that legacy back, send it back home. Let it be a witness to your parents. Can you imagine dreaming big and igniting the people around you to put their hope in God? With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, just thinking about your own life, realizing first, some of you in this room, you're believers in Jesus Christ, but maybe you're just maintaining right now that, that you in your life, you've just been maintaining. When it comes to your faith in your life, you've just been showing up. And God's saying, encounter me. Come be with me regularly. Begin to feed yourself on a regular basis. Come listen to me in my word. If you can't hear my voice, at least listen to my words that I've written for you. So believers, just be honest with God about where you're at. Whatever the Holy Spirit's put on your heart today. Secondly, I realize that there are people in this room, you've never given God your life. In fact, the biggest giant in your life right now is your ego. You're just saying, I, I, I've been refusing letting God have control of my life. I've been refusing giving myself to God. And, and I got to remind you, your ego is not your amigo. But that today maybe is the day that you say yes to Jesus. You say the starting point is to know the living God. And after that, see what he can do in my life. And if that's you today, you're ready to give your life to Jesus. You're choosing that today. Then you pray a prayer like this right after me. You just repeat it right where you're sitting. God hears you. Jesus, today I say yes to you. I ask you to come into my heart and make me a new creation. I believe that you died on the cross, that you were buried in the grave, that you did that to forgive me of my sins and that you rose to new life and that you conquered sin and you conquered death and you offer me new life. And so Jesus, I accept that today. Today, Jesus, I'm saying yes to you. If you just prayed that prayer, will you raise up your hand just right where you're seated saying today is the day. I just prayed that prayer. I gave my life to Jesus today. I offered myself to him. Anywhere around the room, you just hold your hand up. We've got some friends who'd like to give you some information based on that decision you made. Just saw three people in our first hour just overwhelmed with joy because they finally just surrendered their life to Jesus. They just gave themselves to him. Awesome. All the way there in the back. Anywhere else. Just hold your hand up high enough. They'll find you. You just be bold and put your hand up. Awesome. Jesus, we're so grateful for you in our lives. We thank you for what you're doing in and among us. God, I pray that we would be your church to dream big dreams, to envision great things as you begin to utilize the little that we have to slay our giants. God, we love you. Thank you for being the king and the God of the living armies of your sons and daughters here on earth. That's us. God, we love you. Work in and through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some Grove Church, we give it up for what God's doing among us. Thank you for listening to the Sungrove podcast. For information on Sungrove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.